The reading is from Luke 9, verses 18 to 26, and is from the message version. One time, when Jesus was off praying by himself, his disciples nearby, he asked them, What are the crowds saying about me, about who I am? They said, John the baptizer. Others say Elijah. Still others say that one of the prophets from long ago has come back. And then he asked, And you? What are you saying about me? Who am I? And Peter answered, The Messiah of God. Jesus then warned them to keep it quiet. They were to tell no one what Peter had said. He went on. It's necessary that the Son of Man proceed to an ordeal of suffering, be tried and found guilty by the religious leaders, high priests and religion scholars, be killed and on the third day be raised up alive. Then he told them what they could expect for themselves. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? If any of you are, is embarrassed with me and the way I'm leading you, know that the Son of Man will be far more embarrassed with you when he arrives in all his splendor in company with the Father and the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Anne. I hope you enjoyed that um, fresh take, really, for many of us on uh, what probably is quite a familiar passage uh, if we, most of us are used to reading it in the, uh, in the sort of church Bible version, the new international version. Now, uh, I, I was Googling this week. Uh, I, I, I quite like that word, don't you? Googling. Um, uh, weird, yes, I know. But anyway, I like Googling, and that is a great thing because it stops you having to get on with what you're meant to be doing, which is writing a sermon. And uh, when I was Googling, uh, I found a couple of video clips that I thought would work really well. So it was purposeful Googling, uh, and I thought I would share them with you right now. They're quite short. They're both adverts. Uh, and the first advert is from South Africa, and it's an advert for Redbush Tea. <coughs> Cape Town now. I'm sorry, sir. That flight is. That is a business class ticket. Yes, sir. We could arrange a. Do you know who I am? Introducing the rich aroma and distinctive taste of a new premium tea, Joko Gold. I didn't realize. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? There's a gentleman here who doesn't know who he is. If anyone is able to assist him, please report to the information desk. Joko Gold. <laughs> it's enough to make you drink red bush tea, isn't it? Which I like. Uh, okay, and the second one, we go a little bit eastwards and we head for New Zealand. And this one's an advert for scratch cards. So please don't take this as the clergy saying it's a good idea to buy a lotto scratch card. But um, the advert says it all, actually. 
One minute. One minute, please. Time, thank you. Could you all please put down your pens and bring your papers to the front of the room? Thank you. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry, you're too late. Gave you plenty of warnings about time. You failed. Sorry. Excuse me, do you know who I am? I have absolutely no idea. Good. <laughs> love it, eh? Don't you just love it? How many, of you, uh, how many of you who are teachers relate to the sort of worldly boredom of that chap invigilating there? Anyway, do you know who I am? That's what we're thinking about today. Do you know who I am? And Jesus' big question to the people who were around him was just that, not phrased exactly in those words, do you know who I am, but who do you say I am? And that's not far removed from uh, what was being asked in the, video, in the videos there, but thankfully he didn't get quite such a cheeky or rude response, did he, uh, as, the, as the folk in the advert there. And that's just as well, really, because he actually asked the question twice. He asks it of his followers uh, about the crowd. He said, uh, to, he asks his followers, who do the crowd say I am? And then he asked directly to those who are following him, his disciples, who do you say I am? And... It's a question that all of us who are followers of Jesus or thinking about it, we all have to answer that sometime sooner or later. Who do you say I am? Asks Jesus. So this is a good moment just to pause and take that question and turn it to prayer before we carry on. Father God, you're asking us this morning to think about this question Who do we say Jesus is? And for many of us, the answer will come straight back. Jesus Christ is Lord. But I pray that you'll just reveal to yourself to us this morning, that you'll give us, shine your light into that knowledge and turn that knowledge into something that engages us in our hearts and our emotions the love of Christ for us. Amen. So as we've just sort of spiritually opened ourselves up to what God might be wanting to say to us this morning, let's turn and look a little bit at the Bible passage and what we can learn from that. So first of all, we've got the crowds and they're avidly following Jesus around, aren't they? Masses of them. Um, They're bringing their friends and relatives to be healed. They're listening to his teaching, kind of hanging on his every word. And they have just witnessed what's arguably one of the biggest, most amazing miracles that uh, Jesus did, which was the one we looked at last week, the feeding of the five, over 5,000 people, if you count in all the women and the children as well, using a tiny wee packed lunch of five loaves and two small fish. So they've, they've seen all that going on. They've heard all that going on, but their answer to the question, who do you say I am, is completely inadequate. And it actually shows a lack of understanding. It's what you might call informed by rumour control. 
Because what they think, or who they think Jesus is, is a prophet. They think he's a, maybe the great Old Testament prophet Elijah, come back to life. Or maybe, more up to date for them, John the Baptist, who'd recently been executed. Maybe he was that prophet, come back to life. That's what they think he is. And there is a little bit of truth in that because Jesus had come to speak prophetically about the coming of God's kingdom and he had come in to usher in a mighty act of God through his death and resurrection. But the crowd's answer fell far, far short of the truth. And I wonder this morning, are some of us like that crowd We can acknowledge that Jesus is a good teacher, a good man. We might even give him the credit for being a bit of a prophet. But we can't, or we won't, get our heads around the full implications of what Jesus teaches. And instead, we're actually settling for less than the reality of who he is. God the Son, actually. We don't want to have too much of him in our lives. We're kind of more onlookers rather than participants in what's going on. So are we like the crowd? Is that where we are today? Next up, Jesus turns to the disciples and they are just flawed individuals. They're floundering about just like the crowd is really. But Jesus turns and just imagine him sort of looking directly at them and saying, and you, who do you say I am? Um. Well, Peter, as ever, speaks up for them. And what does he say? Well, he's seen and heard the same things as the crowd have, but he gives the right answer. Good for Peter. He says, the Messiah of God. And other translations have it as the Christ of God or God's anointed, the liberating king. Because that's what they thought the Messiah was. They thought the Messiah was going to come and he was going to be like a soldier liberator. He was going to free them from the persecution of the Romans. He was anointed of God for that task. They were just expecting an earthly king to do earthly things, free them from earthly troubles. They weren't expecting someone who was going to set them free from the consequences of their own wrongdoing and teach them the ways of God. That's not what they were expecting at all. So Peter's assertion was, right, you're the Messiah. But Jesus knows that him and the rest of all his disciples, they haven't got the full picture. At the time, what Peter said was probably the biggest and highest declaration he could think of as he sort of searched around to get the answer. You are the Messiah, the anointed one of God. But it wasn't enough because it doesn't reflect the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make and it doesn't reflect the sacrifice that Jesus demands of those who confess him as Lord. And in the Bible reading, Jesus, we heard Jesus immediately going on to counter this expectation of the Messiah coming in with sword blazing and getting rid of all the Romans and re-establishing the kingdom of Israel in that sort of physical way. No, he says, the reality is that the Messiah is going to suffer and die. And it's necessary. It's Jesus' mission. It's the one that God has laid on him. It's designed by God to rescue mankind. And these are very strong words from Jesus. The Messiah must suffer and die. 
And they, they mean that anyone who preaches or believes a gospel that stops where Peter did just by saying he's the Messiah and doesn't take on board the next bit of Jesus' words of that he's going to suffer and die, to put it bluntly, that's what I would call a false gospel. And it's cheap grace because it doesn't take the cost of believing that into account. Because a crossless discipleship is no discipleship at all. A crossless gospel, a gospel without the cross as central to it, isn't a gospel at all. Put it another way, the way we live our lives, the way we live our lives as we follow Christ reflects what we understand about the Lordship of Jesus. So are we like the crowd, following behind Jesus, contented to sit and listen to him, but we're happy to be onlookers rather than participants, perhaps only a bit half-hearted in our wish to find out more, we would like to, but we can't find the time, or it's all right for others, not for us. Are we a bit like that? Or are we like the disciples and Peter? Do we realise, we do realise who Jesus is and we have committed ourselves to following him but we haven't really taken on board the fullness of what that's actually going to mean in reality. Because coming right up are Jesus giving four demands of true discipleship and the cross overshadows each one of them. And if you want to know what those demands might look for us then Jesus is the very model in his own life of that. And there are four images to sort of go with the four demands. We'll just run through them quickly. The first image is of taking up your cross. Verse 23 in the the version we heard, Jesus says, You are not in the driver's seat, I am. Don't run from suffering, embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. For some of us are more familiar with it being put like this. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And that word follow is what they call the continuous present tense in the Greek. And it means keep on following me. Daily follow me. Don't stop. You've got to do it all the time. Give up your life to Jesus. Taking up your cross. Then the second image is of a battlefield. Jesus talking about self-sacrifice. Verse 24 in the message, Jesus says, self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. The NIV, when whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And that's kind of what soldiers might be urged to do and encouraged to do on the eve of a battle, you know. Because the first to die would be those who turn and run. And if you don't do that, if you give no thought to preserving your own life, you may well keep it. That's quite a paradox, isn't it? Giving up your life is what leads to true fulfilment. Indulging your own appetites and ambitions just leads to death. But spending your life following Jesus, whatever that may mean, the cost for you, that will bring life in all its fullness. And then we have our third image. We've had the taking up of the cross. We've had the battlefield. Now we've got the marketplace. Verse 25, what good would it do to get every material thing you want and lose you, the real you? This uh, pictures of Black Friday, that hideous to me day, back in the autumn sometime, I forget when, when suddenly everyone is fighting to get stuff because it's all reduced uh, in the stores. 
And the pictures themselves are pretty unedifying, I think. The impulse for human beings to succeed, to acquire, to get powerful, to prosper, it's really powerful. But Jesus said there's no point relying on material wealth or security. So what if you gain the whole world, but you lose in that your very self? So there's an irony here too. If we give up worldly glory, we're going to gain so much more in the glory of the world to come. Give it up, you get more back. Take up your cross. Give self-sacrifice. Don't worry about gaining material things. And finally, the fourth image, what I've called coming out. Verse 26. If any of you is embarrassed with me and the way I'm leading you, know that the Son of Man will be far more embarrassed with you when he arrives in all his splendor. I don't know about you, but I utterly cringe at the thought of arriving in heaven to find Jesus embarrassed with me or in other versions ashamed Jesus is encouraging us I would say he's urging us to be open about our faith to not keep it as a hole in the corner faith but to take those opportunities that we get naturally in conversation to share what Jesus means to us and what God has done in our lives So if we were to sum up these four images in one short sentence, it's probably something like this. The way we live our lives now, the way we live our lives now determines our relationship to the Lord in the future. That is heavy stuff, isn't it? Heavy stuff. I wonder how you're feeling about this. I wonder what thoughts are going through your mind right now as you respond to that question of Jesus saying, who do you say I am? But actually, I don't want this sermon to be one that's going to lay a huge burden of guilt on you. I don't want you to go away thinking, I'm a miserable worm and, and there's nothing I can do. I just, I will never be able to reach those standards. I can't try. I can't do it. Because many of us know that's not what it's like. That's not how it is. Jesus has spoken some really hard-hitting truth. And we, we do well to take notice of what he's saying. But these truths are spoken out of a really, really deep and abiding love for us. Love is underpinning the whole conversation. It's not spoken, there's not the word love is spoken, but it's there absolutely nonetheless. So I, I want us to think about the things that I've just been talking about in this way. I want us to take it from our head and and place it into our hearts. We follow Christ not because we love him, although we do, but because he first loved us. We follow him not in our strength, but in his. We follow him not because we want to earn our salvation by doing good, good things, but because he has saved us by his grace. We follow him not because we ought to, but because we want to. Paul's letter to, a second letter to the Corinthians, he writes this about himself and and us. 
He wrote, For Christ's love compels us. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ's love compels us. All these burdensome-sounding demands of discipleship, they just fade into insignificance beside the wonderful truth. If we can get our hearts around it, that Jesus loves us, and he died for us, and he bled on the cross, and he rose again to bring us everlasting life. He loves us so passionately to do that. And if we could just let that wonderful truth embed itself into our heart this morning not just accept it academically with our minds, then do you know what? The cost of following Jesus will be something that we can just joyfully take up. It's because we want to, not because we have to. It's our relationship with Jesus that sets us free to joyfully embrace whatever the cost is of following him. And I say again, the first step towards really realizing that is to know just how much he loves you. If you take nothing away, that's it, really. He loves you with a deep and passionate and all-consuming love. But here's something I came across a couple of weeks ago, and it was quite a bombshell to me, And I'm actually still working through it, so you're having work-in-progress thoughts here. The question I came across was this. How many of us have allowed our relationship with Jesus to become one of seeing him as a resource rather than as a person? That means all about seeing him as someone we go to for help rather than building a relationship with him. Maybe our prayers are all about asking him for help, for me, for others, all very good. But if that's all it's about, that could mean that we're seeing him as a resource. Because, astonishingly to me, if we see Jesus just as a resource to answer our prayers in the way we want and do what we want, that means it's all about me not all about him. It's about he can serve how he can serve me instead of the other way round. It's as if I've been seeking his hands in my prayers. Do this, please, would you do that? Well, I mean, I'm not saying those prayers are wrong, but if it's we've got the balance, if we haven't got the balance right... Have I been, have I, have you been seeking Jesus' hands rather than his face? Because you know what, Jesus, all he wants is for us to look into his face and then we have our relationship with him. Thomas, the disciple, you know, the one of the doubting Thomas fame, he said, um, if I see Jesus' hands and touch them, then I will believe. But actually, when it came to it, when Jesus came into Thomas's presence, Thomas wasn't bothered about his hands. He just looked in his face and he said, my Lord and my God. He recognized Jesus for who he is. So maybe, this is the thought I'm floating with you today, maybe like me, you have slipped into seeing Jesus as your resource rather than seeing him as a person. 
Maybe you, like me, have become focused on Jesus' hands, not his face. But take a closer look at those hands, if you will. In those hands are the holes, the marks of his love for us, the marks where he was nailed to the cross. See those holes and what the sacrificial love that they represent and then just allow them to draw your eyes up to his face. What do you see in his face? I suggest you would see a face full of love for you. A face that deeply desires to have a relationship with you. A face that you can gaze on with love for all eternity if you turn your life over to him. Psalm 27, 8 says, My heart says of you, seek his face. And your face, O Lord, will I seek. Seek his face is encouraging you today. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to this challenge, to seek his face? What might that look like for you? I'm still working on it, to be honest. For me, I think it might be something about meeting God in sung worship. It might be something about my prayers being more about praising him and giving thanks to him than asking him for things. For you, it would probably be different ways. So what would it mean for you to seek his face? What would you see in his face? Would you see the deep, unconditional love, his deep and abiding passion for you? Would you see his total acceptance of you? Because that's what his face will be showing when he looks at you. Do you want Jesus in your life simply as a resource? Or will you seek his face and deepen your relationship of love with him in that way? I'm going to end uh, my thoughts now at that point and I'm going to encourage us to take a time of quiet because this is really between you and God. You know where you are with God. You know whether you're like the crowd or like Peter or whether you've gone deeper and you're much further down the road than I am probably. But just hear that question. Jesus asking you in the shadow of the cross, who do you say I am? Will you seek my face this morning? Will you see my passionate love for you and my emotion for you? And will you receive that love? And will you love me in return? Who do you say I am? Let's take quiet before the Lord now.
just receive the love of God for you. For who you are, his precious beloved child. Someone he laid down his life for. Thank you, Lord, that the more we seek your face, the more you show your love for us. Thank you, Lord, that you died and you rose again to bring us life in all its abundance and all its fullness. Thank you, Lord.